as we're coming out of COVID and starting to look towards COVID recovery, we have a massive problem on our hands in terms of addiction and mental health. It is like perfect storm of circumstances that lead people to use and commit suicide. For any type of code recovery to be fully effective, we have to include provisions for addiction and mental health, period. Welcome to episode number 51 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way in order to inspire you to live a life of meaning and purpose. Hi, my name is Conrad Weaver, and I'm so glad you stopped by to listen to today's podcast. Today's show is sponsored by the documentary film, Heroin's Grip. Most people don't understand addiction and the impact it has on individuals, families, and communities. Heroin's Grip is a 67-minute documentary that clearly tells this story in a way anyone can understand. Watch it today on Amazon Prime Video. My guest today is Ryan Hampton. Ryan has rocketed to the center of America's rising addiction recovery movement. He is a former White House staffer and has worked with multiple nonprofits and national recovery advocacy campaigns. He's the author of American Fix, Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to Fix It. The book contains Ryan's personal story and journey from addiction to recovery. Ryan is a prominent leading face and voice of addiction recovery and is changing the national conversation about addiction. Stay tuned for this compelling conversation. Hey, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode and then share this episode with a friend. And now here's my interview with Ryan Hampton. Ryan, welcome to the My Story podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Conrad. It's good to be here. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, tell me a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Sure. Well, you know, uh, first and foremost, I'm grateful to be here and, and to be able to join you, even though it's here on, on the podcast, I've found that even in these times of, you know, physical and social distancing, that it's important that we keep some sort of emotional proximity. So thanks for creating that space here for me and for everybody that, that is listening. Um, it's always important for me to kind of, you know, self-identify uh, when I do things like this and podcasts and interviews. So it may sound a little repetitive, but my name is Ryan Hinton. Uh, I'm an author. I'm an advocate, brother. I'm a son, I'm a fiance. I'm getting married, hopefully post-COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly a dog lover. Uh, my, mm-hmm. my, my dog dollar is, is actually on the bed behind me watching me as I record this. <laughs> um, but most important to me um, is I'm a person in long-term recovery which means I haven't felt it necessary to have a drink or a drug or any other mind-altering substance since February 2nd, 2015. I just celebrated uh, six years, actually, beginning of this month. And uh, Wow, congratulations. That's, that's a milestone. Thank you. I mean, these are all things that I never thought were possible. You know, in the work that I do, um, the advocacy, the writing, um, the grassroots organizing, um, the working with uh, the Voices Project that I, that I founded, uh, with my best friend a few couple a couple of years ago, uh, the recovery advocacy project. All these things aren't necessarily a result of of my own personal experience, although my personal experience has certainly guided it. It's really been based off of the experience that I've had watching others struggle, right? Watching mm-hmm. others 
have such a hard time um, finding their voice, watching others be shut down, whether they're in the process of seeking help or whether they're in the process of seeking change uh, in their own community. And that really inspired me to get louder on this issue, to get more involved. Um, and boy, I, if you would have asked me six years ago, what are you going to be doing in uh, 2021? Well, certainly I wouldn't have said I'd be you know, sheltering at home in the midst of the pandemic. But right. I also wouldn't have been able to, to see that, you know, all that pain that I, that I had gone through, that my family mm -hmm. went through, and that my, my friends and, and loved ones were going through, was really turned into a passion. Um, hmm. and, and so give me a little bit of a sense just about, you know, where that journey took you and, and how you got to where you are. Sure. Certainly, my family and myself, you know, the, the indicators for me having some sort of a substance use disorder didn't necessarily, you know, show themselves or were present in my younger years. Um, I was someone who, you know, did well, fairly well in school, uh, was interested in a lot of extracurricular activities. Um, did I, you know, one of the common questions is, did you have trauma when you were growing up? Was mm -hmm. there childhood trauma? And, and the answer to that question, you know, transparently is yes. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and things that just weren't talked about though, right? Things that, mm -hmm. that, that, that didn't really come out actually until I was uh, in my recovery journey. Did I, you know, struggle in terms of sexual identity? Yes, I'm openly and proudly an LGBTQ person today. Um, my, my fiance, Sean, is also in recovery. It's been one of the more beautiful things in my recovery is to, to be open about that. So these were kind of under the surface issues that I had mm. growing up, but on the surface, right? I was a very happy kid, did well in school, was very interested in politics. I was a weird kid. Um, I used to, to leave school and, and you know walk a couple blocks to a state senator's office to volunteer mm. after school to keep myself busy and out of the household. Um, I got involved in political campaigns. Uh, and in 1996, when I was uh, in, in my younger years in high school, uh, got an internship on the, the Clinton re-election campaign. And hmm. that turned into an opportunity when it was time for me to go to college uh, to take an internship at the White House, which eventually turned into a job, which, you know, while I was in college, turned into another job working for the, hmm. you know, the Democratic National Committee. And I had this up and coming career in policy and uh, community organizing and working with labor leaders and, and all the things I had always dreamed and imagined that I wanted to do. And in 2003, I was living in Washington, D.C. and went hiking on a, on a trail called the Billy Goat Trail, uh, which is this really steep trail in the center of Maryland and Virginia. And I slipped and I injured my ankle and I injured my knee and I ended up in the care of a, a urgent care physician in Maryland and they prescribed me my first like real high grade opioid. It was hydromorphone. And um, a lot of people ask like, did it start there? Did, was that the moment that your substance use disorder began? And I, I can today with all that I know, can't give you an honest answer and say yes. I think that my substance use disorder was longstanding. I was someone who definitely drank in college. I used cocaine. I, but it was more, I don't want to you know, caution using the word recreationally, mm -hmm. but it also, I wasn't suffering the negative consequences of like being unemployed and homeless and, 
and things like that. When I was prescribed opioids though, all of those things that were already in me, that, that SUD, that addiction was just kind of woken to a completely different level for me. And the doctor that day said, you know, you need to, you need to get this knee and this ankle checked out. You need to go get an MRI and, and they might even need surgery. And, um, I didn't have time for that, but what I did have time for was to keep going back to the doctor's office and get another prescription. Mm-hmm. And the nexus of that, and, 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 you know, had I stayed in Maryland and DC, would that have maybe leveled off because I was being prescribed this, this one particular opioid? Possibly, maybe, maybe I would have stopped. Maybe it wouldn't have become such a big deal for me, but where, where really the perfect storm was, my father had recently passed away during that time frame, and, and I got called back home uh, to be closer to home. You know, I took a job back in, in South Florida, where I was from, and moved back home uh, to Broward County, Florida. We're right on the line of Broward, Miami-Dade County line. And I was on this prescription for opioids, right? I, I, I at that point, was taking them regularly, still is prescribed. And I, I came home and needed to find a doctor to, you know, write me this prescription, you know, so I could continue with my pain management routine. And I went to my... um primary care. And he was like, you know, that's not the type of medicine that I practice a primary care physician, but there you have all these choices, you know, he's like, Ryan, like there's pain management clinics everywhere. You know, you just need to find a pain management specialist. So for those listening that don't know, you know, many of you may know, and probably do know the history of kind of this pain pill epidemic, you know, the pill mill epidemic, um, the heart of it, you know, was really in South Florida. And um, I, so you kind of landed right in the middle of that, yeah, that nest of of evil. In it a was way. home. It was home. Yeah. I mean, there was more pain management clinics and pharmacies that only dealt in, you know, scheduled narcotics than there were Seven Elevens or McDonald's. Mm. Like I, I'm, mm. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that. Like there were probably wow. six or seven within a three mile radius of where I lived, mm. and. Um, I was referred to one of those and they switched me over. They said, you know, you're taking too many of these. This has a, you know, there's, there's, you know, you're taking the Norcos and you're taking the, the, the hydro, uh, the, the hydromorphone. And there, there's this medication that you only need to take once in the day. And, and it, it kind of, you know, gives you a little bit every single day. It's controlled release. And, you know, it was Oxycontin. Right. And by the way, when, you know, if you do have more pain while you're on the Oxycontin, there's this thing called breakthrough pain and, and, or, and, and breakthrough medication and it's oxycodone. And, um, you may feel a little woozy down during the day. So we're going to give you an upper and that's going to help you keep up. And you may have problems sleeping at night because, you know, the opioids may have a reverse effect on you. And so we're going to give you a, a, a benzodiazepine at night to bring you down. And, wow. and, um, of course, I said yes. You know, yes, 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 yes. You know, more, 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 and um, that went on for some time. And it was that year that I I went through my first kind of full blown nightmare type withdrawal. Hmm. And the first, and I was remember I was sitting at work. I was working for a member of Congress at the time in South Florida who was running for the United States Senate. And I, I got really sick. I hadn't had my medication in 14, 15 hours. I had run out and um, I started getting really ill at, at, at the office. And I put two and two together. You know, this, this definitely had something to do with, with the medication. 
than the use and, and the not use. And my mm-hmm. first thought at that moment was not, I have a problem, you know, like clearly I don't have a problem because I'm working for a member of Congress. Mm-hmm. I was running for the US Senate. I mm-hmm. do all these things and can't be me, right? It, 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 mm-hmm. It's that I, I need more. And um, so I started seeing more doctors, you know, and there was no kind of regulate. There was very little regulation at the time. Um, there was no tracking or anything like that. So it was kind of open season at the time down there in terms of the PDMPs. And um, I started essentially doctor shopping. And that went on for a couple of years. And, and as my use progressed and my substance use disorder kind of went into severe territory, um, I did start to see the consequences and it all came piling down on me like a pile of bricks very quickly. I was unemployable, didn't have health insurance, you know, started isolating, you know, making really bad choices in terms of what I was doing with my life and, and, and letting my use really like guide, you know, very critical decisions pertaining to my family and my health and, and the ways I was accessing um, these meds and the state of Florida. And this wasn't, you know, my story isn't unique here, but the state of Florida in 2008 had decided, 2008, 2009, decided they were going to institute the first version of the uh, PDMP, the Physician Drug Monitoring Database, except this database, when it was created, was created to more or less protect the provider, the medical provider. So doctors didn't want to get sued. Doctors didn't want to get in trouble. Pharmacies didn't want to get in trouble. I mean, quite frankly, at the time, I don't think the state of Florida cared what happened to people like me. You know, they kind of saw us as dirty criminals, you know, kind of gaming the system. And um, that's not how it should be, right? Like if someone is kind of identified as seeing multiple doctors and having uh, multiple prescriptions, like they should be offered help. They shouldn't just be kicked to the curb. But that's what happened to me. And people say, well, how did you get to heroin? How did you get to illicit street heroin and fentanyl and, and other drugs? Well, I walked into my doctor's office one day. And by this time, I was couch surfing. I had bouts at homelessness. I had tried treatment. Like it was, it was all very downhill or all downward spiral for me. And I walked into one of my doctor's offices to get a prescription. The doctor said, in pulled out this piece of paper and was like, you've seen X amount of doctors and you got your last script a couple, you know, a couple of days ago and you're a criminal, you're a drug seeker, you're a junkie. If you don't leave this office, I'm going to have you arrested for trespassing. I'm going to turn you in. And I'm just thinking, you know, she's telling me all this, of course, after taking my hundred dollars for the visit Hmm. and telling me all this, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Like I'm in with full-blown withdrawal right now. If I'm like blacklisted from all these doctors and I can't get these FDA approved medications, right? Like, Hmm. even though I'm doctor shopping, like how am I going to live? How am I going to survive? I was in survival mode. And this wasn't just happening to me at the time, this was happening to tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. all across the state when the, when the PDMP went into place. And there was no plan for what to do with us, mm-hmm. right? But when I walked out of that doctor's office and you know there were 30 or 40 other people that had just gotten kicked off the rolls, there was somebody there. And they said, mm-hmm. we have a much cheaper, I have a much cheaper alternative and something that can help get you well right now. And it was heroin. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the moment I started. And um, it led to a lot of destruction. It led to several overdoses. It led to, you know, some really deep, dark moments in my life. But, you know, and just six years ago, a little bit over six years ago, you know, homeless on the streets of Los Angeles, 
by the grace of, uh, you know, people say, people will say by the grace of their higher power, I'll say by the grace of my higher power and access to Medicaid, you know, I was able to find qualified evidence-based treatment that saved my life. And it wasn't just the treatment though. It was the treatment and it was being able to get safe, qualified recovery housing and peer support and someone who is willing to give me a job and work with me and lift me up when I can lift myself up. Um, and that's, that's led me to the place where I'm at today. Hmm. What are some of the, the big life lessons you learned along that journey? That nobody can do this alone. <laughs> that tough love is a myth. There's no such thing as tough love. There's only love, you know, and the way people, the way people may, um, share that love or express that love or different, but, but tough love is just, you know, for me, it's a farce. You either love someone or you don't love someone that you need more than treatment. People need more than treatment to sustain recovery. They need long-term support. They need long-term support in the terms of mental health care. They need long-term support in terms of access to housing. You know, it's very hard and it was my experience for someone to enter or sustain recovery without a roof over their head, you know, without something to eat. People need job training. <laughs> like these are all things that, that, that are kind of, you know, social determinants of health, you know? And I think that that has been one of the more maddening things that's led me to the advocacy perspective. And to be so loud about this is that we call this a chronic healthcare issue yet we deal with it as an acute crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Someone's got a problem. It's like, oh, great. Let's just get them treatment and everything's going to be fine. Right. That's not how it works. Treatment's a great start for those who can mm -hmm. get it. For, mm -hmm. for Not everybody, you know, not everybody's going to have access to treatment. 90% of people who have a problem will never see the doors of a qualified treatment facility, right? Mm -hmm. wow. And I think the biggest takeaway for me you know, now looking back and moving forward is that things will never change. We will never have a robust, you know, recovery ready infrastructure in healthcare, in communities. Why is that? Do you think people don't want that? Do you think the, the no, I think people, I think people, I think, I think for the most part, people are very well intended, but I do think that people are also misguided. Hmm. People with lived experience, people in recovery, people who use drugs, people who work in harm reduction, like all these different individuals who are impacted, you know, a motto that I kind of live by is those closest to the problem or closest to the solution. They need hmm. to be included. They need to have substantial positions of power and substantial uh, places at these decision-making tables when it comes to discussing what does a recovery continuum look like? Where does funding need to be allocated to? What do local community-based resources need? You know, where do we need to focus on capacity and infrastructure building, right? Do we, you know, mm -hmm. uh, building out a, a robust peer recovery support infrastructure in this country. Peers, you know, whether they be in harm reduction or in recovery or with people, who, you know, PWUD, with people who use drugs, like peers are the future of how we're going to address this crisis and curb curb the overdose numbers. Um, yeah, that's the one thing I learned when I was working on my documentary, Heroin's Grip, that, you know, it takes, and, and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but takes one person who's experienced this issue to help another person who's experienced this issue. And so it takes, you know, it takes one to know one, right? And, it, and there's no, I think what, what there's, you're saying it takes one that's been there to understand the solutions. 
Yeah, there's no um, replacement for it. But this is all very based. What I'm saying isn't just kind of pie in the sky. Like there's a lot mm -hmm. of evidence sure. around this and data around this. Mm -hmm. And these types of things, you know, uh, housing, peer support, on-demand equitable access to care if someone needs it, evidence-based treatment, job opportunities, uh, technical skills training, um, all, you know, job training. All of these things are, are very well rooted in evidence, but the people with lived experience, people like me, people like my, my peers and my colleagues, were oftentimes kind of like, you know, I don't want to say kicked to the curb, but discounted when it mm. comes to having these discussions about what should we be doing in this country, in our states, in our communities? What is it that we need? Well, you know, sometimes they leave that to like the people with the alphabet soup next to their name, mm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and they're, and they're lacking in that lived experience. And while they're very well intended and they, and they're right, it's not all that we need. Like we have to look at this through a medical, through a medical model, but we have to also look at this through a realistic model, right? Mm -hmm. Which means not everybody's going to have access to med medicine. Not everybody's going to have access to that hospital room. Not everybody's going to have access to that, you know, five-star, you know, um, healthcare provider, right? Until we're able to like really offer affordable, accessible healthcare to every single American, you know, there's a lot of other things that we could and should be doing to save lives. Right. What and, happened um, this past year during COVID? Did did we see a rise in use and in overdoses? We have seen, and that the final numbers should be coming out soon, but the most historic increase in death by overdose and death by suicide, and those two go hand in hand, mm -hmm. um, than we've ever seen in the history of the United States since this data has been tracked. Um, eight, and we're not hearing any of that. No, we're not. I mean, we're starting to hear some of it, but it it is now more than ever important that federal lawmakers, the new administration, state lawmakers, county, city, you know, invest in addressing addiction and mental health and overdose immediately, not waiting till this summer but immediately as we're coming out of COVID and starting to look towards COVID recovery, we have a massive problem on our hands in terms of addiction and mental health. It is like, again, the perfect storm of circumstances that lead people to use and commit suicide. Hmm. Loss of job, loss of income, loss of housing. Look at the food lines around this country. People can't eat isolation. People can't are losing that human connection right? The quote unquote deaths of despair. Like these are deaths. These are like real deaths of despair that are happening. I heard someone once say that, that addiction, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the precipitating factors in addiction is isolation is, is a lack of connection. Right. Johan Hari, right? Like his, his mm -hmm. chasing the scream. And he, he talks yeah. about that often. I mean, mm -hmm. and he's right. And, and I think on the, on, on my side of the dirt of this though, what's, what's maddening for me as a person, as an advocate, as someone who's seen this death and destruction in my community and is seeing just like the lack, the government, the federal government, the state governments, the philanthropy space, corporations, like it's the whole system dragging their feet on this is, my gosh, look at what they can do. Look at what they've done here in COVID. COVID is a bona fide, legitimate public health crisis. And it, we just passed 500,000 people dead. It is it is mm -hmm. mind blowing how awful it is and scary it is. Mm -hmm. But 
We've also seen, I mean, the United States federal government has literally printed trillions of dollars overnight to address it. Hmm. We had a vaccine out within record time. We had direct payments to people so that they, to, to help offset the economic, you know, downslide from the crisis. We've had pop-up clinics all around this country. Like, I mean, we, we have marshaled, this country has marshaled the full will power of the United States government, state governments, municipal governments. Like this, what, how we're seeing COVID address, there have been daily briefings, mm-hmm. right? By the White House, public mm-hmm. health officials, the CDC, the FDA. Like this is how they, you deal with a public health crisis. This is it. Like what, how they're dealing with COVID, like this isn't a takeaway from COVID, but this is, this is the playbook. Like this is how it's done in this country. But and so why can't we do this for the, for the addiction crisis? Exactly. The- like we get a public health crisis declaration with not much money attached to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, right. like, so that's, that's because, the it, because it's, it's, it's to the general public, I think, and to the politicians who they don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to, it's icky. It's kind of, you know, it, it's just not. Well, I think it goes further than that. I think they, they, they'll call it a public health crisis, but they won't treat it like a public health crisis. Mm. Right. Like they'll say the right things in front of the camera, but really when it comes time to addressing it, are they putting, you know, their money where their mouth is? Mm-hmm. I think we've come a long way. I think, you know, the Obama administration did some good stuff. I think the Trump administration did some good stuff. I think Biden's got some good plans, but if we're going to really get real about this, we need to be looking at a minimum, a minimum 10 to $15 billion a year investment, you know, money that goes not just to states and state infrastructure, but money goes to frontline services, money that goes to harm reduction, money that's going uh, to peer recovery support services, money that's developing that workforce of peers naloxone has become a rarity during the crisis, like harm reduction groups are running out of naloxone. Like there's a lot of things we can be doing, Mm -hmm. but first we need the commitment of the federal infrastructure and the federal investment. Mm -hmm. And um, look, it's no secret, I'm a fan of of our new president. I helped develop some of the policy um, that during the campaign. And, but I also think there's a lot that that administration needs to be doing right now. We don't need to wait until COVID's over. Like we need to be addressing them as parallel public health crises, dueling public health crises. What can we as as citizens do? What what can I do? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, if you're a person in recovery, like and 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 I know it's a very personal decision. It took me time to be able to get to the place where I could disclose my recovery status, but. Um, be public about your recovery. Be be proud about your recovery. And and uh, if you can't do that, and it's a very personal decision, I also understand because here in this country, in the United States, in 2021, employment discrimination still exists. Discrimination within the court system still exists. People can't get um, life insurance, you know, if they disclose their recovery status. But it makes it more important for those of us that can to do it for those who can't, because not every American can do that today. And there are a lot of us, you have a lot of people in your corner. Secondly, I would say, if you're an ally, if you're a parent, if you're someone who cares about this issue, pick up the phone and call your legislators and tell them why aren't they doing more on the addiction and mental health crisis in this country? And why are they dealing dealing with it separately than COVID recovery? Because for any type of COVID recovery to be fully effective, we have to include provisions for addiction and mental health period. And that's probably one of the most effective things we can do 
right now as new COVID relief bills are coming out, um, as states are starting to address what do we do post-COVID, we must deal with the addiction and mental health crisis in this country. Well, Ryan, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, and thank you for the work you're doing and for the advocacy that you're working on. So how can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about you? I know you have a book that you've written. Sure. And where can they find that? Yeah, American Fix Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to End It. You can find it on Amazon. It's a fantastic uh, book. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. You can reach me um, on Twitter at Ryan for Recovery. Um, on Instagram at Ryan J. Hampton. Uh, and you can always hit me up on my website at ryanhampton.com. And I'll put all those, those links in the show notes. Ryan, thank you for coming on the My Story podcast and telling your story. And thank you for the work you're doing in the recovery community. Thank you, Conrad. And stay safe, everybody. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your story and your passion of solving the national addiction problem. Your work is so important, and I'm so thankful to have you on the show. Thanks for listening to the show today. And if you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. And share this episode with a friend or colleague. The music on today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Finally, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast.